for those kind words. Uh, and I, I'm going to echo the words of Jake from Monday in thanking the Bible Department for this opportunity. It is truly a tremendous opportunity to uh, be able to preach to you and to open up God's Word together. And so this morning we're going to do just that. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. And my text for this morning is only three verses, verses 24 through 27, four verses. But I'm going to back up and start reading at verse 13. So Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. And I'd ask if you stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13, says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And our text for this morning, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we have yet again to open up your word and to study it to learn from it, to listen to it. And Lord, I pray that as I speak this morning, that it would not be my words that I am speaking, but your words through me. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, and I pray that you would use it mightily, that you would be glorified through this. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me repeat that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain 
what he cannot lose. These words were written by Jim Elliott in his journal just days before he died. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jim Elliott, he was a missionary to Ecuador, and while there, he felt God calling him to reach out to the Aka tribe, a tribe that was known for its extreme hostility towards outsiders. Nobody had ever successfully made contact with this tribe, and Time Magazine even called this tribe, quote, the worst people on earth, end quote. But Jim realized the need to share the gospel with these people. And so leading up to his departure for the tribe, he was praying earnestly for them, both he and his wife, hoping that they would have an opportunity to preach God's word to them that they would hear. However, after a few days of camping close to the tribe, Jim, plus the four other missionaries who were with him, were murdered by the very people they were trying to reach. Killed ruthlessly, even though they were trying to share the good news of the gospel with them. Now you ask, why say this? What's the point in opening up with that? You see, Jim knew before he went to this tribe, he knew that he could die. He knew the cost of what he was getting into. In fact, he and his wife Elizabeth spoke about it briefly before he left. They knew what could possibly happen. But yet Jim had a passion for Christ, a passion to see, to see God's word shared, far greater than he did have a passion for his own life. And that's exactly what he paid in an attempt to reach these people. He wanted to glorify God in everything, and ultimately, he paid the price of his life. You see, Jim, Jim Elliott understood what being a true disciple of Christ really means. What it means to follow Christ with everything you have, even your own life. And that's what we're here to understand today. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Christ? What does that look like? And so we're going to look at verse 24 here. Now, before we do that, we have to understand what's the context? What's the point of Jesus saying what he said here? Why did he write, why did he speak what he said at this given moment? So we need to back up. So let's look at verses 21 through 23 first. And here, Jesus is explaining to his disciples how he will suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. But it seems that the disciples missed his, his last little point there, that he would be raised. Now, the disciples, they had believed that Jesus was coming to reign on earth, that he was going to reign supreme. Many of the Jews believed that. And so they had seen themselves as kind of the next in command behind Jesus as his disciples. And so when Jesus said he was going to die, it stopped them right there. Whoa. What? We thought you were coming to reign. We didn't expect you to die. And so Peter, being the outspoken person that he is, takes him aside and rebukes him for saying these things. 
He says in verse 22, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's saying, you aren't going to die. You can't. Us disciples, we were expecting you to reign. We want what we want in this situation. We want you to reign. We don't want you to die. We can't have that. That's not going to happen. Now, Peter, you go back to verse 16, and Peter knew who Christ was. When Jesus is asking them, who do you say that I am? Peter answers him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter is in essence saying, yes, I know who you are, Lord. I know that you're God. I know that you're Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But I want what I want. Us disciples, we want what we want. Not what you want. Not your will. And so Christ, in verse 23, rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And listen to this carefully. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Christ is telling Peter that he's focused on what he wants, and he needs to focus on what Christ wants. What is Christ's will? What is God's will here? In fact, we see the same thing in John 21, where Peter's concerned about what's going to happen to John. He asks him in verse 21 of John 21, Lord, what about this man? But Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Why are you concerned about this? He says, you follow me. The focus shouldn't be on, oh, what's going to happen to John over here? What's going to happen to this guy over here? No. What does that matter? Follow me, Christ says. And so the disciples and Peter, they knew who Christ was, but they wanted their own wants. They had their own desires in the situation. So here, in verses 24 through 27, Christ lays out for them what it means to follow Christ on his terms. Not on our own terms, on his terms. The disciples need to follow Christ on his terms. Why? Because as our chapel theme for the year states, Christ is all. He's everything. And we need to follow him as such. So getting into verse 24 now, I divided my notes, for those of you who take notes, I divided my notes into three main points, into three main sections with several subpoints underneath each. And the first main point is the principle. The principle here in verse 24. This is the fundamental truth. This is how we must follow Christ. What it is to follow Christ. If you ever ask the questions in study, who, what, where, when, why, this is the what. What it is to follow Christ. And so verse 24 reads, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The principle. Now this verse begins, Jesus' statement begins with a conditional statement. A conditional clause, an if clause. If you want to follow me, this is what you need to do. If you're going to be my disciple, these are the things that you need to follow. These are the things you need to do. And if you flip that, you cannot follow me unless you do these things. These are the principles. These are the fundamental truths of following Christ. And so the first one here, the first principle, 
It says man must deny himself. The first principle, man must deny himself. Now the term deny, it takes on the sense of disownership, to disown. And the same word here is used by Christ when he tells Peter, you will deny me three times. You will disown me three times. And that's exactly what Peter did when individuals would approach him saying, weren't you with him? No, I wasn't. I don't have anything to do with this Jesus. Peter is disowning who Christ is. And for this text, we need to deny ourselves. The first principle in following Christ, we need to deny ourselves, disown ourselves, disown our fallen, sinful state. On our own, we are fallen, sinful beings, our sinful humanity. A quote from William Hendrickson's New Testament commentary says this, quote, To deny oneself means to renounce the old self, the self as it is, apart from regenerating grace. A person who denies himself gives up all reliance on whatever he is by nature and depends for salvation on God alone. You see, by ourselves, in our own state, we are sinners, fallen sinful beings, separated from God. As Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, a sinner. Now let me drop a little truth bomb here. A truth bomb, can I use that term? A truth bomb. You are not all that. Okay, nobody ran out screaming, that's good. You are not all that. Now what's, what's an example of this to deny oneself? You're not all that. Go over to Luke 18. Luke 18, and I'm going to look at verses 11 through 13. Now here Christ is comparing two prayers, the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the tax collector in Luke 18 here. Now let's start at verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. And I'm going to add a little emphasis here for point. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He is not denying himself here. He is praising himself. God, look at what I'm, I'm doing. Look at what I've done. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Self-centered, all about himself. There's no denial there. But now let's look at the tax collector. In verse 13, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, this tax collector, he recognized his sin, and he was begging God for mercy, because he knew that without Christ, he was nothing. He was a sinner. In fact, he says, I am the sinner. That is what denial of self is. It's disowning, disowning your sinful state, recognizing that, yes, I am a sinner, I need Christ, I am not all that. 
So understanding that is saying, God, I need you. I give myself wholly over to you because I can't do it myself. I'm going to live for you. But when you live wholly for Christ, when you live all for Christ, we need to understand that there will be persecution. There will be persecution. So that gets us to our second point in the principle. First, you have denying yourself. Now you have, you must take up your cross and follow me. The second point in the principle. As we often hear it said, it's not if you face trials of many tribulations, it's when you face trials of many tribulations. And while that can be rather cliche around a conservative Christian campus, it is still a true principle here. Now, to understand this statement, to take up your cross, we need to understand how, what does that mean? And so, to understand it, we look at it from the perspective of the disciples. What did that mean back then? And we actually have a wonderful illustration of it, because our Savior, the Lord Jesus, did himself take up his cross. And so it means, quite literally, to carry the wooden post in which you will be crucified on. You're carrying the object that will kill you, that will aid in your death. And Christ here is telling us to do so willingly. Willingly die. Willingly be able to die for him. Lang's commentary puts it this way, it is the readiness to endure even the most painful and ignominious death in following Christ. So this is, in essence, a continuation of denying yourself. So first you deny yourself, recognize that you are a sinful being, recognize that, Lord, I need you, I need you wholly, and in so doing, I'm going to follow you with everything I am, and if that means paying the price of my life, I will do so willingly. You must take up your cross and follow Christ. So if we're willing to deny ourselves, say, I'm not all that, and if we're willing to die for Christ, so what? what what's, what's the point to this? So that takes us to our second main point. First we had the principle, now we have the purpose through a paradox. The purpose through a paradox. Now remember, the disciples, they had anticipated ruling with Christ on earth. They had wanted what they wanted. But let's look at verse 25. It says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, they wanted, they wanted to rule with Christ on earth. They wanted to live. But Christ is saying, to live, you must die. Live, you're going to die. And if, if you lose your life, you'll, you'll live. What does that mean? And so break it up into two sections. Two parallel sections, if you will. The first is the one who wishes to save his life. And the second is the one who loses his life. They parallel each other in the fact that they are opposites. They're parallels. But there's one word that seems to throw a little wrench in the statement. It doesn't quite make it a parallel because of this word. 
And that is the word wishes in verse 25. Whoever wishes to save his life, whoever desires to save his life, whoever has the want to keep their lives. Now to use an illustration of Dr. Boland's from a few weeks ago when he spoke, some of the richest people in the world and many celebrities are spending millions of dollars attempting to elongate their lives attempting to live longer. You see on the news, 100-and-something-year-old individual reveals secret of long life, and that could be happiness, joy. One individual said eating your vegetables. Another individual said not eating your vegetables. They all have this desire to save their lives. In fact, one study from 2014, I got a good kick out of this, these individuals, after they die, they've consented to have their bodies frozen. Okay, they freeze themselves at extremely cold temperatures so that at a time that medicine is, quote, good enough, they could be thawed and then revived. And to me, when I, I read that, I was like, hey, you know, Han Solo did that. <laughs> but as we know, that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> and while we joke about this thing, it is their earnest desire. They really want to keep their lives. It's their wish to do so. But that is wishful thinking. That's a fantasy as opposed to a certainty. They're not living according to verse 24. They're not denying themselves. They're promoting themselves. They want to keep their lives, and they're certainly not taking up their cross. They're not willing to die. And sadly, these individuals will get what they dread most. It says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But on the other side of this, there's a much better promise. The other half of the verse, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the key in this is the phrase, for my sake. Yes, you will lose your life. It's not a fantasy like you wish to keep your life. No, it's a certainty. You will lose your life. But the key is losing it for Christ's sake. Being willing to lose your life to gain Christ. And the reward in this is, as it says, finding your life. It's a far greater reward than the pain you may have to go through when you take up your cross. And so let's look further at this paradox in verse 26. 26 asks two questions. Christ here is asking the disciples two questions. So I'm going to answer each in turn, and then I'm going to look at it as to how Christ, as to what his point is in this. So verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So let's look at the first question. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Essentially, it's asking, what good is it to have everything and be spiritually dead? When it's talking about your soul here, it's talking about your spiritual life. What will it profit you if you have the whole world but lose your soul, if you are spiritually dead? And so let's think about this for a second. Let's, I'm an illustrative learner. 
I'm a visual learner. I like to see what I'm learning. And so these individuals, they can have absolutely everything, all the money, wealth, power, fame, etc., etc., etc. But when their life ends, their life comes to an end, what do, they, what do they take with them? What do they get to take with them? And the answer is nothing. So the answer to this question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Nothing. You can't take anything with you. As Dr. MacArthur has said before, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You don't see that. Because the person's dead. They have, no, they have no need for those things. And so in essence, with this individual, since he is spiritually dead, what he has on earth, all these things, all these objects, this is essentially the best it's going to get for him. Because if he lives to be all 120 years old, let's throw out a rather crazy number, the oldest person alive right now is somewhere between 110 and 120 years old. So if he lives to be 120 years old, and then he dies and spends eternity in hell, what good were those 120 years of having everything? It's foolishness. Just utter foolishness. So, we can see this in Luke 12. Now you remember... This is Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. I'm not going to turn there. But it is the rich man who built these barns, had all this stuff, and he's saying to himself, I will build bigger barns. You remember this? And what does Jesus say to him? You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? You're going to die, you're going to die this very night, and what do you get out of it? What, what are you going to have? What's, where's this stuff going? And the only way that man can answer is, not mine. That stuff isn't mine anymore. I can't have it. Now, I'm not saying, hear me out on this, I'm not saying that we can't have nice things. I'm not saying that we can't have money. I'm not saying that we can't drive a nice car or whatever. But I'm saying that our priority needs to be first and foremost on Christ. Now this tie that I'm wearing today, this cool green, red, black striped tie, this is one of my favorite ties. I love this tie. It's my preaching tie. And I like to get my ties at Macy's. They have really cool tie collections. And for you ladies, you'll understand this. I like Michael Kors. He's, he's got the best tie collections. But yet my joy and contentment, my happiness, isn't centered around having ties. I don't go into Macy's and say, I gotta have it. And then when I walk out there seeing the price tag, oh, I can't have it. That's not where my joy is found. My contentment is not found in what I have. This individual who wanted to build bigger barns, he wanted to be merry, as the text said, because he was content in what he had, all that he owned. But that's not where true contentment lies. And so let's look at the second question now. 
It says, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here the man is attempting to give something that he has, a possession that he has, in order to obtain eternal life, in order to gain life, gain his soul. But yet, if he gives absolutely everything he has, if he owns the world and tries to sell it to get his soul, to gain eternal life, he can't do that. Again, the answer to this question is, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. He can try to give everything, but nothing equals that value. Why? Because he's trying to buy something eternal, eternal life, with something that is fleeting, with something that will be done away with, that is decaying. And so Christ's major message to these disciples in, in, these two, in this verse, through these two questions, is that the things of life, the things that they were currently concerned about, these things are not comparable to the things of eternal life. The things of eternal life are much greater than the things that were on earth. They were concerned about what was going to happen on earth, about them reigning with Christ, but yet those things, they're not comparable to eternal life. And so we've understood what the principle is, what it, what it is to follow Christ. We've understood a little bit as to why, what the purpose is through this paradox. And so now I want to look at the prophecy or the promise, the third point here, the prophecy or the promise. And so Christ has instructed them here, he's told them, that seeking after the world is lost. The things of this world are not near as valuable as eternal life. But here, this is seeking after Christ and how he will reward those in the end. This is the prophecy or the promise. So let's look at verse 27. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The promise or the prophecy. Now this is the second coming of Christ. He will judge all of mankind. So if you think about it, this is either a really good thing or a really bad thing. And so in order to understand, you know, is it good or bad, we need to look at the premise, the premise of this judgment. What are the qualifications of it? And he says, towards the end of verse 27 there, he will repay every man according to his what? His deeds. According to what they do. See, we need to live out the principle that we saw in verse 24. That needs to be in our lives. We need to do these things, and we will be rewarded accordingly. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying... My point here is not that, that works save you. We know that. Ephesians 2.8. It's through grace alone that you are saved. Salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. But true saving faith, true faith produces good works. 
good deeds. You see that in Matthew 13, that the parable of the seed, those that hear the word receive it gladly, the good seed, they produce fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. In James 2.17, we famously hear the verse, faith without works is dead by itself. And in 1 John 2.6, it says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We ought to live in accordance to Christ. So we can believe the principles that we learned. We can believe that, oh yeah, I need to deny myself and I need to take up my cross. We can believe that. But if we aren't doing these things, it's useless. Now some of you are thinking, hold up, Nate. I know my Bible. Matthew 7. There were those that said, Lord, did we not do many things in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name and perform miracles in your name? And you say, ah, they were, they were cast down. What are you going to do about that? I'm glad you asked. What does Christ respond to these individuals? It's Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. In verse 23, Christ responds to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness. Now, practicing here, for all my music major friends, practicing does not mean what you guys know it to mean. Practicing is the habitual action, a pattern, a habit that you have. And while for some of you music majors, practicing is quite a habit, I'm sure. But it's, it's a pattern, a habit. It's what you do repeatedly over and over again. Kind of like how you should have the habit, you should have the practice of brushing your teeth before you go to bed. You should have the habit, hopefully, of showering every day. And so, these individuals here in Matthew 7, they would do these things. Yeah, they prophesied and whatnot. But their lives were patterned after lawlessness. Their habits were lawless habits. The things that they did every day were lawless habits. There was no foundation in Christ. They were not rooted in Christ. There was no lasting faith. Now for us, we can come to chapel, we can go to church, but if it's not our practice, if it is not our daily habit to follow after Christ, then we have missed the point. You can come to chapel, praise God, even be charismatic and put your hands in the air, but if your lives are not patterned after God, then you've missed the point. I've heard it said that the church today is rather out of touch with the world. We're old-fashioned. We sing old songs, dress up all fancy in a suit, where a dude stands up front and talks for 45 minutes. And you know what I say to that? I say amen to that. Because if looking cool, if being cool uses the world's definition of being cool, then I don't want to be cool. 
If our practice is after what the world thinks is cool, I don't want that. That's not what I want. The worst thing I think I could ever hear is someone tell me, you're a Christian? You see, to me that says that my life is demonstrated through things that they normally do, things that they practice, worldly habits that they may have, but yet I tell them I'm a Christian, and they say, what? That's not what you've practiced. You know, that, that's not what you do. Our practice needs to follow our beliefs. We need to walk the walk if we're going to walk, if we're going to talk the talk. And so, to kind of understand all of this, if our lives are patterned, if we're practicing the principles that are found in verse 24, if we're denying ourselves, recognizing our sinful humanity, saying, God, I need you, I'm giving myself over to you, even if that means I'm going to die, even if I have to take up my cross, and we understand that to take up our cross, to die, to lose our lives, is to gain it. And then having the promise, the prophecy, of being judged according to our deeds, what we have done, if that is our practice, then this is what the promise of being a true disciple is. The Bible never says that life is going to be easy. It never says that. But it does guarantee us the riches that are found in Christ. Those who lose their lives for my sake, they will find it. And the cost here is so great. You look at the principles in verse 24 of denying yourself, taking up your cross. This is such a weighty matter. But that's because the promise is so great. The riches are so great. Having your life in Christ, that's a wonderful promise, a wonderful guarantee. We get to follow after the great shepherd who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful promise. And so if we have to suffer on earth, if we go through persecution, which we will, then at most it lasts for 120 years, 150 years to be insane. But yet, the riches of Christ last forever. Eternity is forever. Life here on earth is a speck in an empty room. And so seeing that it's Spurgeon Fest week, I wanted to wrap this all up with a Spurgeon quote. It says, You cannot be Christ's servant if you are not willing to follow him, cross and all. What do you crave, a crown? Then it must be a crown of thorns if you are to be like him. Do you want to be lifted up? So you shall, but it will be upon a cross. We need to follow after Christ. I mean, doesn't, isn't that what the word Christian means? A part of Christ? Christ? 
in the same way that Californian means a part of California? If we're going to be claimed to be Christians, then we need to follow after him as such. Understand that we're not all that. Understand that if we have to give our lives for Christ, we should do so, and do so willingly, because the riches that are in Christ, the glory of having Christ, is such a wonderful promise. And seeing that I, that I enjoy the hymns, I'm going to read the lyrics of a hymn to you. It says, All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we had to open up your word and learn from it. And Lord, I pray that as we leave here that our actions in chapel, our practices in chapel wouldn't stay in chapel, but that we would live out these principles in our daily lives, that we would take up our cross daily to follow after you. So Lord, I pray for these students as, as we come to the end of the semester that in the busyness of life, that our focus would never leave you, that they would find comfort in you. And Lord, I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, all that you have done. And I pray, Lord, that we would live in such a way that would glorify you.